0: Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We had a slight technical delay but we're on track now and we're delighted that James Carroll is our speaker this morning. He's going to talk to us about ICU delirium. Uh, there are no conflicts of interest or monetary issues associated with the talk and he will be introduced to us by Rick Enalo, who is the section chief in pulmonary medicine and critical care. So Rick.
1: So it's a uh, it's a pleasure to introduce um, my colleague uh, James Carroll, who uh, uh, we recruited from the University of Iowa about four years ago, I think it is, maybe more. Um, uh, James is probably known to most of the House staff who have rotated through the ICU as an outstanding uh, clinician and teacher, and he's won teaching awards. Um, He did his undergraduate education at a small college that most people never heard of, um, Amherst, and his his, uh, medical school at uh, University of Iowa, where he did his uh, residency and fellowship, and then stayed on faculty for a while. Uh, He has an interest in pulmonary hypertension, in asthma, in intensive care. He's published. a variety of different in variety of different domains. He's spoken in a variety of different domains, including a number of international uh, circumstances. So um, he's going to tell us about uh, uh, ICU delirium, and and we're talking about the patients here, not the the, the caregivers. James. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Rick, for the kind introduction. I uh, actually was going to talk about the doctors and the delirium that the doctors experience in the ICU, but I think that's a much better better topic that you've outlined. So the topic today is going to be the clinical face of ICU delirium. I'm, I'm very happy to be to be joined by one of our uh, former ICU patients, Connie Sheehy, who will be sharing some of her uh, observations and experiences while under the under the care of Many of myself and many of my colleagues in the in the ICU also quite uh, quite uh, uh, pleased to see many of my ICU colleagues uh, both uh, physical therapy pharmacy uh, nursing members of dart, welcome in medicine grand rounds so Typically we have a discussion about turning off pagers and turning off cell phones and all that beforehand. I think for the purposes of this talk, really the more noise you can make, having side conversations, having anything going beep and buzz and all that, that is perfect. That really, I think, will set up the stage for the talk on, on delirium. Additionally, we're, we're intentionally going to be uh, changing around this this talk a little bit, where I will be talking and we'll have Connie talk a little bit, and the the idea between having frequent changes in in speaker is to in part try to try to simulate the uh, the ICU experience with multiple multiple shifts. Uh, with by way of disclosures, I, I have no financial relationships with any uh, that I need to disclose for this talk. What I would like us all to be able to do at the conclusion of this talk would be to you know, be able to list at least five risk factors for the development of of, of uh, delirium and. I put parenthetically, critically ill patients. These risk factors are derived from the, mainly from the non-critically ill, but we're extrapolating that into the ICU. I want to review strategies to lessen the impact of this ICU delirium, and then we want to go to one of the higher level learning objectives and and feel at the end of this discussion that we all will be able to advocate for our patients or those who are at risk for developing ICU delirium. The outline for the talk, we'll go through a, a quick, background of delirium. I'll go through a reference case, define delirium, discuss etiologies, talk about how we diagnose it, talk about how we can treat it, and then uh, at the very end I'll go back and pay another visit to our, to our reference case. We, we know that the utilization of ICU resources is increasing. From the years 2000-2005, ICU bed capacity increased the number of, of days people spent in the ICU increased and the number of beds that were occupied increased. At the same time, we have people, more people surviving their ICU stay. If you look at the beginning of the 1990s, uh, ARDS mortality was up in the 60% range and now it has dropped down into the 26 to 30% range. Likewise, sepsis mortality was high in the 40% range at the beginning of, of uh, millennia and has uh, subsequently dropped about, about 10% to, uh, to a 27%. So we have more people using the ICU, and we have more people who are surviving their ICU stays, but we don't know very well what the long-term impact of of ICU survivorship is. There are questions about residual critical organ dysfunction. If you had lung disease going into the ICU, you probably still have lung disease when you come out of it. If uh, you developed a, a complication from an ICU procedure, you may have complications of that complication afterwards. There are numerous molecular skeletal limitations and what we're going to be focusing on today will be the cognitive changes that can come about after a a lengthy ICU stay. The cognitive consequences, we we know a vast majority of people who have ARDS will have neurocognitive sequelae after hospital discharge. These are persistent up to two years or beyond after after that discharge. Limitations include memory impairment, concentration difficulties, uh, impaired executive function, uh, all these do improve over time, but it does take quite a bit of time. The, uh, there is a severe cognitive impairment present in the majority of ICU, MICU survivors at, at three months, which does decrease over the course of the year, but I think the, the photo negative of that statement is more, uh, more compelling, that only 21% have no evidence of cognitive impairment at, the, at three months after an ICU stay for ARDS, and by, by the end of one year, that number only improves to 29%. We you know that the, the deli- uh, duration of delirium in the ICU is an independent predictor of the post-ICU cognitive impairment. So I would like to shift and talk briefly about our, our reference case for today. I'm gonna present a, a case, a, a 60-year-old uh, lady who presented with a one, to the hospital for one day history of chills, a, a junky cough, some diffuse uh, muscle aches. Uh, the symptoms were reminiscent of a prior episode of, of influenza, and she had had a recent ill contact with a with child past history really was not remarkable. Uh, Some elevated lipids, a little bit of osteopenia, but she remains very physically active and has been a lifelong non-smoker. On exam, in the general medicine clinic, she was ill-appearing with a a low blood pressure. Pulse was a little high, oxygen saturation was normal on room air. On lung examination, the astute clinician identified crackles in the right posterior base, but there were no other obvious signs of of physical difficulty. She had a chest X-ray on the 31st, uh, to evaluate those crackles, and they uh, identified essentially a relatively normal-looking chest x-ray, some, some hyperinflation, some fluffiness, and perhaps around the right hilum. She uh, had a, a, screen, a sputum screen that tested positive for a human metapneumovirus, an emerging viral pathogen that we're becoming more aware of these days. It was admitted to the hospital medicine service for IV antibiotics and for, for fluids. On January 2nd, Uh, she had increasing respiratory uh, difficulty, had a need for more oxygen, I had a a gram stain that tested positive now for uh, streptococcus pneumoniae, was transferred to our step-down unit for for further medical care, and over the course of that night had a rapid uh, clinical deterioration, ended up in the ICU the following day for initiation of mechanical ventilation, at which point uh, a working diagnosis of ARDS secondary to the viral and bacterial infection were entertained. So I will summarize her ICU stay on, on this slide. She presented with a hypoxemic respiratory failure, which was complicated, uh, thank you, uh, complicated by strep pneumonia, ARDS, pseudomonas ventilator associated pneumonia, and a critical illness polyneuropathy. She had numerous medical procedures, intubated three different times, ultimately underwent a tracheostomy placement, had a peg tube placed for, for prolonged enteral feeding. Had a pleural effusion requiring a pigtail catheter placement, had a lumbar puncture as part of the workup for her critical uh, illness polyneuropathy, uh, EMGs, nerve conduction studies, uh, some central lines, several arterial lines, 28 X-rays, a chest CT, and four different MRIs. There were an undocumented number of IV insertions, undocumented number of enteral tube feeds placed, uh, bladder catheters, rectal tubes, and soft restraints were were placed uh, quite frequently. She was Brought into the ICU on the 3rd of January and on the 6th of February was finally liberated from the uh, mechanical ventilation. Transferred out to our step down unit two days later had the tracheostomy tube cannulated a few days after that and was sub- uh, ultimately transferred to the um, Mount Scutney rehab unit, uh, what is this, about 40 days after her initial admission and then returned to her home roughly two months after her initial presentation to the general medicine clinic. This seems like a like a lot, but at the time, many of us were considering this a relatively acceptable, normal level of, of ICU with a couple complications, but altogether not a not uh, an ICU course that particularly stood out as particularly bad or particularly great. So I'm going to present to you the the clinical face then of ICU delirium. This is a, a picture that Connie's husband had uh, obtained while she was in the was in the ICU and they. Kindly shared this with us. Connie, hand this over to you. I'd be happy to do it.
3: Good morning, I'm the reference case. And, uh, <laughs> If I ever thinking I'm having a bad hair day, I just look at that picture and just tell myself I've looked worse. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about my brain on drugs and the thing my mother needlessly worried about in my teenage years. But you know, mom, you were probably right. Uh, last winter, I would have flushed my straight A average down the drain. Never gotten to any college you've ever heard of. And um, probably ended up asking people from my career, would you like fries with that? So. I want to just give a shout out to my husband, Harry, who was an integral part of this presentation and some of his writings. He could not be here today. He is down raising money for Dartmouth and he told me last night, I'm glad I'm not going to be there. I'll probably blubber throughout the whole thing and distract you. So,
4: um,
3: so back in the first slide, and, and unfortunately you have to see that again, you can see how productive I was on drugs. Um, it looks like I'm sleeping peacefully away when really, in my reality, I was sitting in a really clammy beach chair, um, trying to fill out an application for a summer rental in the exclusive Dartmouth Peninsula. (laughs) Now, I don't know if Geisel faculty are eligible for this. You'd have to check, (laughs) it's a really great deal. And it looked kind of like this. It took me a while to find that image. Um, So let's think a little bit more about that. So that that is uh, one of the houses that I thought I was going to get as I sat there, and when I was sitting there waiting to talk to this committee, I could hear them deliberating in the next room, and one of them was saying, "We shouldn't put them ahead of others. you know they've only been here three years and and he's an athletic director you know he's not on the faculty <laughs> and then a woman's voice said, "But she's been so sick, you know we really feel sorry for her. we should do this for them." Then another guy chimed in and said, well, he's had an affair, so why should we reward them? And I just despaired. I thought, oh, no, it's all around town now if they know about it. So this particular house, which actually was really neat to find because it had the blue and white awning that I saw, I could envision inviting all our friends there over the summer. I I worried that we'd already made plans, though, and I really need to check with Harry. I was also worried about the teenaged who always delivered my drugs to me. I was never actually in the hospital. I was always in different private homes. And this poor little couple, these kids, lived in this bleak rural home and took care of people for extra money. But now they were developing their drug business and delivering drugs on the side. (laughs) And I was waiting for those drugs. And (coughs) instead, there were some bullies who were trying to take over their route. And they were in front of me. I could see them through the glass in the door, which I assume was the ICU glass. And I was so afraid. And I said, oh no, I put the committee at risk. Um, I need to call Harry. Where is he? I think he's at a hockey game. He could save us. And then smoke leaked into the room, and which often happened to end my different scenarios, and I passed out. So these are the characteristics of my delirium. And just it's really important to note that they were not dreams. They were detailed recollections. I remember these as clear as a bell. And I think it's really important to know that I felt all the emotions that the situations presented. So I felt abandoned. I was scared. I needed to solve the issue. They were connected. So I'm never sure, I know when some of them happened. But in the different scenarios, smoke was always a factor. Harry's affair was always interfering with something I was trying to do. I always, I was just devastated that I could never drink anything or eat anything. Meals would be brought near me and I was never invited to participate. <clears throat> never could figure out why, I didn't realize I had a tube down my throat. I distorted time, so I was mixed up on my day and night. I thought it was July for some reason. And I will never use the expression again, he doesn't know what day of the week it is. Because I didn't know what day of the week it is and it's kind of mean to someone who's kind of out of it. The location was always wrong. I was on the West Coast. I was never in a conventional room. My scale, my visual scale, was off. I often thought I thought there was a Christmas show taking place in the basement of Dartmouth to make extra money. Huge, huge uh, stage set. I thought I was an op- in an opulent 20-foot ceiling ho- hospital room at one point with marble. Um, what else? I felt I fell through space all the time, often with the harps and the cellos and. And I think the violins for the Christmas show, I would always tumbling in space with them. And I faced a lot of challenges. One of the ones I remember so vividly was that I had been date raped. I had been drugged, well that was true, and date raped by a Dartmouth basketball player. I didn't know exactly who he was, but there was an investigation. I thought I had AIDS.
4: I called my friend
3: Lori, who's a psychologist down at Williams, and she brought me up a shopping bag full of drugs for my AIDS. I didn't know quite how to take them, but Thank you, Lori. And I think the the date raping thing, I think, definitely coincided with the the placement of the rectal and Foley catheters. Um, This is also, let's see, and trying to help me with these scrambled thoughts was so distressing to my husband. and He was already very anxious and exhausted. (coughs) So I'm sorry, there's that lovely slide again. But being intubated, the the best thing, these are some of Harry's writings. So if you can just read through and multitask while I'm talking. He wrote on Caring Bridge, which is a wonderful, wonderful vehicle for letting people know about your your condition. And it allows people to respond and really helped him. It was very cathartic for him, but also allowed him to uh, receive words of encouragement and prayer and comfort back. It was wonderful during my recovery because I I didn't read it right away, but as I recovered and and Harry felt I was able, I was able to understand what had happened to me. It was very, very key. Um, Okay, Okay, now that was what Harry was thinking. You saw, I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but he talked about this three different times and how he just ached for me and how he'd been there 18 hours a day and how hard it was to see me, and it just was so terrible. So this is what I was thinking. <laughs> um, in fact, his emails, his he also wrote me an email every day personally. His recollections were made our male friends just out of their minds. They said they would never be able to keep up. He set a whole new impossible standard for husbands around the world. <laughs> so, so while he was penning these beautiful thoughts, I was dealing with, with his affair. And the first time I was extubated, and I could talk, I could my voice in a scratchy whisper. I said, and he leaned forward inspecting to say, I love you. Thank you for being with me. And I go, I know about you and that girl.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: and, and he was so shocked. It was such an incredible effort for him. I would have loved for a psychologist, someone in a white coat, to kind of be there and have helped him through that. We laugh about it now, but I think it was quite a burden. And uh, I actually saw on the Valley News, she, marriage on the rocks, I was mortified. I decided I was going to fight for my man, I was going to find out about this. So I went to his office, and I was creeping along the floor, because I knew I couldn't walk. And I found my friend Chevy, who appears in a lot of my deliriums, And she told me that Harry was devious, and he wasn't who he said he was. And I was just devastated for our marriage, but also for Chevy and her husband, Donnie, who were younger good friends of ours and for whom we really felt like we were mentors and role models. And so I'd been betrayed to them. And, and, uh, but I found Harry in his office, and I confronted him. And his first reply was, I didn't do anything. Kind of a Clinton, you know,
4: thing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and I kind of felt good about that. But then he said, I did hold her. And then he looked at me. And he goes, and I really meant it. And for me, this was devastating. I think Harry, when in my delirium, talked about, I wish I could hold you. His writings talk about that. But I was a little bit filled with tubes and everything. So that was so crushing. And I was going to do something about it. So I, to my delight, somehow, I figured out this other woman was married to another woman. And they had three children. And I thought, I have a chance. Harry. Definitely doesn't want to raise three children at this age. (laughs) And I thought the other woman thing, I had a a leg up there. So I went to the proper authorities and I got them all transferred to darkness location in South America. (laughs) So if you have any colleagues that are annoyed, that's where you can send them. And so, you know, I packed up my non existent troubles and sent them to imaginary locales. Now I don't have time to go into it, but one of my more elaborate deliriums was that. Chevy and Donnie were also having marital trouble, and a DHM nurse named China was involved. And Chevy was pregnant with a long-awaited boy, which she was not, but she wants to be in reality. They already have two ador- adorable girls, but as soon as this baby boy was born, Donnie was going to leave her. He was going to, And they were going to take the baby. He was going to run away with China. I saw them sitting on a park bench talking about it. I had to warn her. And when she would visit me, I was trying to croak out my story and warn her. Can you switch? Mm-hmm.
2: And... Thank you, Tanya. I think that really gives us a, a, a good uh, idea of the, of the sense of reality that, that delirium has, has played in, in your experience. Delirium is defined as an acute brain dysfunction. And this includes a reduced ability to focus or shift attention or sustained attention. Uh, There is an alteration in your your cognitive skills or or evidence of perceptual disturbances. The onset for delirium is typically acute uh, within hours to days and fluctuates over the course of the day. There can be typically an evidence of some cause for the delirium and we know that this is highly, highly prevalent on critically ill patients, upwards of 80% of people in the ICU may have evidence of delirium. The delirium is associated with a longer ICU length of stay, more days on mechanical ventilation, increased increased self-harm, and increased ICU mortality. Displayed graphically, we see on the on the left, self-harm data for, for pulling lines, if there's delirium, uh, 20% of delirious patients will pull a, a central line at some point in their, in their stay, compared to 6% if you're not delirious. If you are delirious, there is a 10% chance of, of pulling, a, pulling an antiraculant tube accidentally, as opposed to the non-delirious patients with a 2.3% risk. The cost of ICU state increases with uh, the with prevalence or incidence of delirium, and overall uh, uh, mortality decreases uh, if you are not delirious. It's increased if you are delirious. There are numerous cofactors for for the development of delirium, some that are patient-based, illness-based, and others that are environmental. If you come into the ICU and you already have a background of dementia, your risk of developing delirium on top of that dementia is quite high. If you have pre-existing respiratory disease, if you're older than 65, abuse alcohol or ethanol, or have existing uh, sensory impairment, then you you are certainly at higher risk. If you have a very severe illness, severe sepsis, are routinely volume depleted, uh, hypotensive, have a prolonged illness, or have numerous uh, electrolyte abnormalities. These will contribute to the development of delirium. And pain, untreated pain or inadequately treated pain, it's a very, a, a very prominent uh, factor. In the environment, now we can think about the about the ICU: uh, excessive noise, sleep deprivation, isolation, use of restraints, use of psychoactive medications, all associated with uh, with uh, delirium onset. How, how loud is an ICU? <laughs> you now we, we talk about an ICU on, on average being in, on the range of 60 to 80 decibels as am, uh, ambient noise. Now I don't really think about decibels. I think about you know whispering, 30 decibels, uh, normal conversation, maybe 45, 50. A hair dryer going all the time that'd be about about 60 decibels. So when you're talking about 80 decibels, this is a lot of noise. This would be you know. If we could all turn our pagers on and off and carry on cell phone conversations, this would be have an emulation of, of, that, of that experience. And this is all in the background of somebody who can't do anything about this. They can't escape this, they can't shut the door, they can't, they can't get away from this, from this noise. Uh, sleep deprivation is also a, a, a huge issue just because we, we do a lot of interventions, the way we design our ICUs to prevent people from, inadvertently prevent people from, from getting a full, a good night's sleep. Uh, this is this is a hand waving slide that I uh, debated whether I should put in. You know, the, this is supposed to tell us that we understand why someone can go from being calm and alert to delirious, but we don't really have a good idea what this is. We know there are numerous numerous cofactors. We think that there may be uh, in the lower left endothelial problems, coagulopathy issues. There may be some uh, some nature of the uh, inflammatory system or the immune system that's ultimately interfering with the blood vein barrier, could be doing some uh, who knows what within the within the brain? Philosophically, you know, you can think this is this is interesting that you can take somebody who's completely alert and lucid, and there's some external stimulus that can impact the way our, our mind works. Very interesting, but uh, but really the mechanism of delirium has not been worked out, other than the risk factors that I outlined. One of the very what i thought was a cool intriguing feature of of connie's uh, connie's case was that we had both a, a medical record well documenting what the uh, physician and nursing team was was thinking was going on we have uh, connie's own reflections that were written after the after her delirium to have tried to put together what what her uh, experience was and then we have extensive emails and um, and a online journal from her husband pertaining to what was going on. So we have one time when he puts in a, a date, Connie remembered a, a date based on what was, uh, what was happening, and I can obviously look in the EMR and the dates actually are accurate in there. Uh, what was interesting, medical record talked about uh, Connie being uh, not talking, there were some spontaneous uh, and involuntary movements that were observed. She might track motion with her eyes, but n- no comment in the notes about delirium on that particular day. Her reflection, my first hospital room could have been featured in Architectural Digest, marble floors and walls, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the, the bottom of there. I couldn't manage to wake up enough to converse, but obviously there's evidence, at least a recall, of a very high level of activity. And then in Harry's journal, Harry noted that she, Connie, definitely knows me, responds all day to my voice. So some disconnect between what the physician team is thinking, or at least what we're documenting, what's going on uh, retrospectively in the, in the patient mind and what the family members are observing. <laughs> this feeds into the, the notion that maybe, maybe our clinical suspicion for delirium is, is not sufficient. <laughs> when we look at patients in the ICU, we know delirium is highly prevalent. All, all comers with delirium, on this slide on the left, uh, upwards of 80% of people in this one study had delirium. Of that, the majority of people had a hypoactive or mixed delirium. Hypoactive delirium is the delirium where somebody is lying in their bed, staring at the wall, not really doing much. They seem very, very inert, immobile. And mixed delirium, there may be, may be, occasionally some, some movements going on. The, the hyperactive delirium, plucking at things, reaching for the tube, all that, all that type of activity. That is actually exceedingly rare in the ICU. Pretty easy to pick up that a person is delirious when they're, when they're plucking at flies in the air that are not there, but. But that's not the common type of, of uh, delirium in the ICU. So, in a study looking at how good nurses and doctors are at the at the uh, <clears throat> detecting delirium at the bedside, the sensitivity for, for nurses was 35, not 35%. Physicians did a bit worse, even at at 28%. And we, interestingly, we we weren't good at really picking up either the hypoactive or the hyperactive delirium. So this suggests that my ability to walk into a room and say, "Hmm, bed one, delirious, bed two, not delirious, That's, that's worthless, that we need to figure out a better way, a better system of identifying who is delirious. We uh, know that there are certain medications that are associated with development of delirium. Opiates, for example, are are one of the risk factors, and benzodiazepine's another risk factor. So uh, I asked Jeff, one of our ICU pharmacists, to kind of go through the record and and tally it up. Jeff, I'm gonna wave to you. Hi, thank you very much for this. Uh, So over the course of Connie's ICU stay, she uh, received a total of 72,568 micrograms of fentanyl. Dr. Rothstein, you do uh, endoscopic procedures, right? Are you, are you a, a heavyweight or a lightweight on sedation? It depends. Okay. What, um, how much fentanyl do you usually give somebody for a. Do you use fentanyl? Yes. How much do you use? Well, typically it's a fraction of what's up there. A fraction? <laughs> a fraction? Okay. That is a very political answer. Thank you. Very much. <laughs> Chair of medicine, everyone. Uh, and benzodiazepines also. For, for a, a typical airway examination, I might use somewhere between one milligram and four milligrams of, of midazolam. Uh, Connie had received a total of approximately 600 milligrams of, of IV midazolam throughout the course of her 40-day of her, uh, stay of 30 days in our, in our ICU, and also a fair amount of, of propofol. Uh, Harry had written on, on here a very, very philosophical statement. Due to the drugs, Connie enters and leaves rational thought and cannot understand what is happening to her or what she has gone through. Connie really had these pictures of Beatles albums. I think I'll, I'll hand this back over to you.
3: <clears throat> okay, I am post tracked in this and Really looking good, don't you think? (laughs) Compared to those other slides. Harry was so excited, he could see my mouth and see me smile. And oh my gosh, for weeks that have seemed like years, I've ached for her to be able to reach out. In a simple moment late this afternoon, Connie reached out, touched me and smiled. And in my mind, I saw her before all this happened. And he said he left. I had an easy smile, born of a peace. So just very tender and thought I was peaceful and Sometime after the surgery, during this time, I wrote furiously on my pad, which is one of my, I wish I could bring in all my writings. I have a few samples to show you, but I was convinced that they had run out of anesthesia. I was really upset about that. Now, I suppose if, if I'd been taking all those drugs prior to anesthesia, I might not even notice that I was on anesthesia, so. Um, I was quite mistaken about that, so go to the next slide. So here's some samples of my writing. And these are some of my really my better ones. And um, if you can read that, it says, I'm not a drug addict. And I I think when they were trying to wean me off the drugs, I I wanted to say, when I get home and everything doesn't hurt and I can breathe again, I will not take drugs, but I really need them now. My sore tummy, my peg tube was a constant source of irritation. On the right, please give me more air. So I often, it's very scary not being able to breathe. And my heart goes out to all of you, any of you who've experienced that. Um, It's it's just terrifying. And um, when they're trying to wean you off the ventilator, somehow having some Ativan is very helpful. That was my favorite drug of choice. Next one. Okay, now this one is much more legible. Um, And that's what Harry wrote, you know when you're ordering something on the web or trying to email an article? You know, the sight prompts you.
4: <laughs> 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 and
3: I would be so angry with him when he didn't understand. And this is pretty late. This is, I'm writing uh, to my friend, my dear friend Deb, who spent time with me lots of time. She actually translated this Surge- surgery in Am. Thanks again. I think I was saying, let's pray. What was the other one, Deb? Oh. Let's pray, God that tomorrow is my surgery, I think it's what you were writing. Don't you think so? that's, she spent a lot of time with me, so. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it felt like that pad weighed a 1,000 pounds. It was so hard for me to write and I thought I was being clear. And I obviously wasn't. Can I
2: so we, we spoke about uh, clinical assessment for delirium not being adequate and trying to develop a screening tool. Fortunately, there is a screening tool that exists. Unfortunately, we don't use it. Uh, the, the screening tool that we use currently primarily is the, the RAS scale, which is a uh, sedation scale. How, how sedate is a person? So we, it ranges from a negative five, which is a person who's comatose, to a plus four, they're levitating off the bed with, with anxiety agitation. And we try to target our sedation to a, a raft somewhere in the in the light to moderate negative two, negative three range to try to keep a person relatively calm during, during their ICU stay. Now, what we should be doing is going on to the next step, which is then to assess for the presence of delirium. Under this uh, Under this protocol, we would First, say, ask, is a person able to be assessed? Are they under deep sedation or in a comatose state? If, if they are, then you can't assess whether they're delirious or not. But if they, if they are not, then you go on to assess for delirium. And delirium is actually pretty pretty simple. First ask, is there an acute onset of mental status change or a fluctuating course of mental status? If mental status is spot on and no problems, no delirium. If that's pr- uh, present, you then look for evidence of inattention. And one of the methods for ask, you know, for doing this is to ask a person, hold, hold my finger, and I'm going to say a, a phrase, I'm going to say uh, words, the save a heart, S-A-V-E, you can read it out yourself. And every time I say the letter A, I want you to squeeze my hand. And if they make fewer than three errors during the course of this, then they're not delirious. But if they, if they squeeze inadvertently, or do not squeeze at a time they should, and they do more um, errors more than three times, they may be delirious. So you go on to the next level of, of testing. Is there evidence of altered level of alertness? So a RAS score of anything less than, anything other than zero, then they you can stop at that point. At that, if you've gotten that point in the algorithm, they are delirious. But if they do have a RAS score of zero, then you look for evidence of disorganized thinking. These are, are uh, answering some questions. Uh does a does do fish swim in the sea? Is I wouldn't have been sure. <laughs> uh, is one pound heavier than two pounds? A, a series of a series of questions similar to that. Four questions in total. And then there's three commands. The three commands. Number one, are you are you having delirium? Yes. Okay. So that's a that's an affirmative answer. So that he answered that he followed commands. The second question, um, uh, I'm going to say a number, and I want you to raise the, uh, raise the uh, number of fingers accordingly. The number is two. <laughs> My second chief is delirious.
4: <laughs> so
2: at, at that point, we're demonstrating signs that delirium is present, and, and then you have to go on into thinking about what you're going to do about that delirium. And this is much different. You know, I, I'd say if you look at, at Rick, actually looks not delirious. He, he's up front, he's attentive, he's awake. But we see through this assessment tool that he actually is quite delirious right now. <laughs> I think I have a performance review later on today. So I'm a little uh, So the slide on FDA-approved drugs for treatment of delirium, right? I, at this point, we have identified delirium, so we trot out the, the pharmacopoeia, we find drugs, and we treat it. Well, there actually are no FDA-approved drugs for treatment of delirium. There are drugs that, that get used off-label, there are, which is a no-no, uh, it's okay, uh, but you know we don't really know how, how good some of those how, how well those drugs will work, and they do not have the FDA indication. So I will not talk about these drugs. There is a um, relatively new treatment algorithm, this um, SPR approach. First of all, screening for screening for delirium. If you, if you don't know that delirium is present, it's going to be hard to treat it. So look for it, particularly in patients who have greater than uh, more than a few of these risk factors for it. And then move on to the prevention of brain dysfunction. This A B C D E algorithm. Uh, first is uh, you have to awake people periodically on a daily basis. We lighten sedation to the point where they can wake up, and at the same time see if we can, can uh, perform a spontaneous breathing trial or lessen the support from the mechanical ventilator to see if they can breathe on their own. The, the big change in this is that in the, in the past, people would lighten sedation at one part of the day and then do a spontaneous breathing trial on, a, on another part of the day. Uh, <coughs> this algorithm would suggest perhaps you should see if a person can breathe spontaneously at the time when you lighten their sedation. Very, very provocative, I'd say. <laughs> the second is the, the, choice, the choice of sedation. There are newer newer sedatives that may have, may have a lower association with delirium. There's still some steady out on, on some of these medications. Monitoring for delirium, once you've identified it, checking it, tracking it every day to make sure it's it's present or absent. And then finally, uh, getting people up, mobile, active, out of bed as early as possible is associated with a decrease in uh, in delirium. I think the what I alluded to early on was this, this restoration of brain function after a person comes out of the ICU. Typically, the ICU docs, you can almost you can almost hear us giving each other high fives when one of our patients rolls out of the ICU to go out to the step-down unit or and floor. We're like, great, our job is done. This person has survived their critical illness, but they they haven't. They've survived the acute part of the critical illness, but that critical illness lasts for a long, long time afterwards. On the left is the data for the coordination spontaneous awakening and breathing trials. The, Top line is uh, uh, coordinating weaning sedation and trying to uh, wean mechanical ventilation at the same time and the bottom is usual care, wean sedation whenever you want to and try a spontaneous breathing trial every day. And there is a statistically significant increase in the rate of uh, uh, the timing of ICU discharge for people who wake up from sedation and try a spontaneous breathing trial in coordination. On the right is uh, new data regarding exercise and early mobility. For for control patients, where you know people decide to you know we get physical therapy involved at a time when it seems appropriate appropriate, or we don't, we just go through usual care. Uh, people are in the ICU longer than people who get a very coordinated effort at early physical therapy, early mobility, even when a person seems like they they may not be able to participate, passive range of motion. Uh, then as soon as they start lighting up on sedation, trying to get them to follow some commands for, for reasons that are maybe not entirely clear, uh, that will decrease the amount of time uh, significantly that the person is in the ICU. It also drops the amount of time that a person is in uh, delirious in the ICU. Thank you, Mo, we, we had uh, one person where, we, where I think I put in a note, uh, need early physical therapy to try to help chaperone uh, this person throughout their sedation weaning. I remember you had thought that was particularly a comical. I'm not
4: a good chaperone.
2: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few uh, proposals for complementary treatments in addition to the, these measured ones: promotion of natural sleep uh, using a quiet time protocol, using diaries, whether this is a nursing diary of what's going on or a patient, a family member diary. Uh, you know, the, Caring bridges, I thought, was a very, a very useful uh, approach. Relaxation techniques have been described as a way to promote sleep. Uh, massage has also been uh, used as a way to try to decrease agitation or anxiety, and perhaps <coughs> decrease the, the use of medication. Music therapy—you know—you can imagine. Uh, you know, some of us might be listening to some relatively calm music, but uh, Dr. Enlow, for example, if I think if we put on some calm music, he would probably get more delirious, and he really wants his Metallica. Well, not, I have that right, right? <laughs> and another, another question, uh, we often will put on television uh, screens and we'll say, oh, well, well, we'll put the TV on so our patients can have some idea. We... It's sort of like, like, uh, like bad parenting, right? We'll put our, <laughs> put our television on and say, the television is reorienting our patient into what's going on in the world and then our patients are delirious. We don't really understand why. <laughs> you know, so it really is at the discretion sometimes of our of our nursing staff to choose what the channel is going to be. So I, I've come into some rooms where a Law and Order episode is on, or Criminal Minds is on, and i that is incredibly graphic, what's up on the screen. And turn over here, and here's this uh, relatively uh, inert uh, uh, patient who's just sort of staring at the screen and has this panicked look on their face, had a chance to talk to one individual after this and uh, the the level of PTSD that that person had uh, based on prior life as a a prison guard, now being tied down, sedated, um, violated effectively, and with the idea that there was there was a active trauma and and criminal acts that were being presented to them continuously, and they could not escape, it was just you know was just incredibly uh, sad. Ter- I felt terrified for this person. So we should think about how we're going to. Yes. Hey James. Um, yes, I was
4: just thinking about earplugs. Have, have we? Have, did you see any of that in the literature review,
3: and
0: whether or not we should?
2: Consider earplugs at night with some of these folks, and trying to regulate their sleep. Yeah, excellent. There, there is some data on earplugs, and that that is one one approach. Using earplugs and and masks to cover the eyes is one way to to help decrease the external distractions. And uh, that absolutely has been has been uh, proposed and seems to be seems to be effective. Now, uh, we have recently opened up a new ICU. And during the construction of that, we had a lot of noise in the old ICU. And uh, I believe we had a pretty vigorous, uh, aggressive uh, earplug policy that was in place. Miriam, I'm sort of looking over, over at you. Was that we pretty much did the case? We
0: earplugs for um, any patient, family member, or anyone who feel like they uh, needed them. Mm-hmm. They
2: drilling them the floors, and um, sometimes it sounded like gunshots. It was very frightening for everyone. Yeah, I tried to brush it off by saying the dental clinic was downstairs, but that didn't that didn't really <laughs> work very well. How many of the doctors, by the way, uh, use the earplugs? Yeah, no. <laughs> probably all of them. So, how do we advocate for our for our patients who are at risk or have delirium? I think one of the one of the key elements that I've that I've picked up from talking to Connie and Harry has been the the importance of discussing with our. With their patients and saying you are you are having delirium right now what you're experiencing is not real uh, it, we hope it will get better we're doing what we can to get this better but it's it's not real and At the same time counsel our patients family members said, our, our patient is going through a very tough time during their critical illness, and they're they're having thoughts that are not reflected in reality. This is delirium, here's what we can expect, here's a time course, and, and at least provide some, some education for this. We have to think about delirium really, with the 80% prevalence in the ICU, we should be thinking, does this person not have delirium? And if they, if they can't prove <coughs> they do not, assume that they do have delirium. You know, asking the question, are you having delirium? When Rick nods his head, yes I am. Well, I I shouldn't be sitting up here and kind of laughing at him and saying, he's delirious. Instead, I should be figuring out, well what what can we do to help bring him back into reality? What can we do for our patients to help bring them back into into their reality? Uh, We talked about use of diary, uh, anything we can do to establish a familiar environment. The daily change in room is probably not helpful. Trying to have family members bring in uh, artifacts from home, the familiar pictures or the cuddly bear or any anything like that is is helpful. If a person wears glasses, you should probably give them her glasses. Uh, think about being in an unfamiliar environment where it's dark, where you're um, altered and now you don't have glasses, so you have no idea where you're going, I think that would be incredibly, incredibly frightening. We need to do everything we can to minimize uh, noise. I was recently in the in the ICU at night and it was a relatively, relatively quiet night. So I sorry Ali didn't really feel like going home quite at that moment, so I sat down in the hallway and, and just chatted with the nurses and the RTs for a little bit. And I thought, you know, here here it is. I'm it's quiet in the ICU. And I'm sitting in the hallway and I'm carrying on a really kind of loud, boisterous conversation. And there are patients around here who are trying to sleep, and I'm giving a talk on delirium in a week.
5: What am I doing?
2: And we have to be we have to be aware of that. And if we're going to have a loud conversation, move it someplace where, where it's not going to interfere with our patients. And then finally, the what struck me so much was the uh, the um, information about uh, about the Foley placement or the rectal tube placement and how that fed into into Connie's delirium. And we we tend to think of a lot of these medical interventions as of, Nonchalant, almost a, a routine housekeeping type maneuvers, but these may have incredible impacts in in somebody's um, delirious reality. So we need to be very deliberate with our with our choice of words and announce what our actions are and explain why we're why we're doing things. So I'll pass this back over to to Connie. <coughs>
4: okay.
3: So there I am and. In- Joe, are you here today? He's
2: trying to. No, Joe wasn't here. For.
3: Anyway, I saw Joe a lot. I kept flunking the pudding test week after week, and um, <clears throat> there was this beautiful picture of frozen pink daiquiris that were melting on my shelves. I wanted them. I would be so annoyed that Harry would never serve me one. And <clears throat> the doctors scolded me on rounds one day for drinking. They discovered we had been drinking. And uh, those are Harry's words at the bottom: that Joe often walked in with fear and trepidation.
4: Because
3: he really taught me well. By the end, I was actually much more scared to drink. I was so afraid of aspirating. So now I just, I close with, I look pretty good there, like I know what I'm doing, right? I look with it, I'm drinking. And that particular night, I had the worst delirium. And it was my last official one. And. Deb and Harry had Harry'd gone to a hockey game, and Deb had gone home to make dinner for her husband at a decent hour. They thought I was going to be fine. Harry left me my cell phone. I didn't even think I could use it. And somehow, all of a sudden, my room grew. It was a big round room, and I was in Deb's house. And I could hear Deb's voice totally clearly on the other side. I heard all these people partying. I thought they were playing board games. And I loved Scrabble. and I. All of a sudden I realized, now oh, here's a person who's been with me and shown me so much love and caring, prayed with me all the time, and she's let me down at the last minute. And she's had this party, and I'm not included, and I'm scared, and I'm alone, and why didn't she come get me? And I'm thinking, how am I going to get back to the hospital? How did I get here? I'm going to have to call a cab. Are there cabs in Hanover? It's all thinking, trying to, whatever. So do you know what I did? I go, oh my goodness, my cell phone, Harry left it on the bed. I called her. I don't know how I did, and she saw the number and she was just shocked. She was just picking the roast out of the oven, and she answered the phone and it was me. And she told me later she, I called her twice, and I said, Deb, um, you know I'm here. I'm, I explained the situation, and she said I, I sounded polite, but I was miffed. And um, still, so anyway. Deb was a little concerned, and she told me, you know, you're in the hospital, call the nurses, ring your call bell, those in the nurse, the shift changed outside, and they had just moved me to this room, so again, that room change. I didn't know where I was, I heard all that noise, I thought it was a party. So she, Deb did call and check on things, and then she called Harry, and he called me, and he said, Connie, turn that phone off now before everyone else in the world. You call anyone else, and they're gonna find out that <laughs> you're such a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> So Mr. Sensitive had left. of
2: clarify: was that was that delirium or was that reality?
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mr. Sensitive, that was reality. <laughs> but I had, we've laughed about it. I was so embarrassed, but my eyes were wide open. I looked just like that, and yet, you know, had sort of the LSD thing going, and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. One more side note. Okay, this is me. Um, this is so exciting. Um, when I got to rehab, I did have my glasses on. and this is the first day that I was able to wash and blow dry my own hair. and I put on my eye makeup. You can't really tell how bad it is there in that slide. But Harry's notes, you know, it's my birthday, my first day there and. But he really noticed that I was struggling a bit cognitively and won't remember much. And I told a nurse, Harry's <laughs> going to explain what happened to me. Soon, but not now. And the final slide. So the worst of times, I had a quite a bad crash on January 25th, just about when I thought I was going to go to rehab, and um, they I had CO2 issues, and they had to intubate me in an emergency situation, and they spent three hours working on me, and and this is what Harry wrote. I think he thought that maybe I wasn't going to make it then, and. He, he had his wishes for me. I want to take, want to take me to dinner, walk the beach. I want she wanted, he wanted to hear me laugh. I want to see her smile. I want to hear I love you Harry. That's what I want. Please pray for Consti, which is what he calls me. And there we were, the best of times, August 6, we made our beach walk and um, So thank you all who had any part of my recovery. Thank you, Dr. Hitchcock. Thank you for me being um, not in my small little regional hospital in North Adams, Massachusetts when we worked at Williams because maybe I wouldn't be here today so um, I hope I don't have too many residual effects, does it seem like I (laughs) do. And thank you James for working together with me on this.
2: So, so uh, and Connie, thank you ever so much for this. I, I was thinking about the, the title of this discussion, and I really thought that there should be a, a subtitle, that it's true we are talking ICU delirium, but really this could also be described as a love story, because I think it's very clear that there's a, a degree of dedication uh, between Harry and Connie that's just been uh, astonishing to watch throughout this. So in summary, recovery from critical illness is prolonged <clears throat> with physical and psychological burdens extending beyond the ICU course. There are multiple risk factors associated with the onset of uh, delirium. We can modify the use of benzodiazepines or limit noise or help people promote sleep. We can get rid of or at least minimize isolation. We can uh, improve their sensations. We can try to restore their volume status and, and treat pain when applicable. The strategies to lessen the impact of delirium are really based on correcting these modifiable risk factors. We shouldn't use psychoactive medications if we don't need to. We should get people off the ventilator as soon as we can so they don't need more medication to tolerate the ventilator. And we need to get them up and active as early as we can. But first of all, we have to be aware that people have delirium and look for it. Finally, I hope that throughout uh, the stories that you've heard today that you realize the, uh, can recognize the deep impact and lingering impact of, of ICU delirium. We all come across patients in our, in our uh, care who are at risk for the development of delirium and we should be all taking steps to identify it and try to, try to correct it, try to minimize it whenever we can and also help our patients through this delirious state. Uh, I need to acknowledge again, Connie and Harry for sharing all their personal reflections, their emails, all the photos that they've offered up for, for this uh, discussion, uh, again, Connie.
0: and you asked you uh, when we can, the earplugs, the light irrigation, how well are we capturing that as a project?
2: And what mm-hmm. can we do mm-hmm. in a coordinated way from that? Well, I think, the, I think there, there's certainly a, a growing awareness of, about, the, about the challenges of, of delirium <laughs> in the ICU. Uh, I, I think uh, the awareness of delirium has been, the, has been the first step. I think one thing that we can do that would would dramatically improve our, our approach to delirium would be to adopt on a, on a daily basis this this CAM-ICU model the screening actively screening for delirium rather than rather than looking primarily at the level of sedation. Now the, the CAM-ICU is a which I showed before is something that we have functionality for that in in our system and I think that this is going to take a few steps for us to get to a point of actively using that both on the physician side and on the, on the nursing side. I think additionally, uh, an awareness of minimizing sedation is always a, it's always a challenge. We, we see people who are lightly sedated in that the lower levels of sedation bring about some, some challenges with uh, moving around, putting, putting lines and such at, at risk. So the temptation always exists to increase the level of sedation to, to somewhat mitigate those circumstances. But I think awareness is a, a good first step.
5: Thanks. Yes. And Connie, Thank you for such a fascinating view into the experience of being an ICU patient. Uh, I just wonder though, um, when, we, when we go through an ICU experience, it's such a horrible prolonged experience. Is it possible that delirium is uh, itself a positive thing that the brain is doing to adapt to, do we really want people to be awake and aware? Of what's going on when they're having these procedures done, and of the very slow passage of time, and mm-hmm. you know the, the discussions going on around them about whether they'll live or die, and so forth, and the grimness of the ICU. I mean, is it possible? Mm-hmm. Is it possible that delirium is just a marker of being real, really rather ill? Mm-hmm. Rather than a bad thing
2: in itself. Well, I think I think it is certainly a, a marker of, of illness. We see a lot of those a lot of those cofactors. The more sick a person is, the more the more likely they are to develop delirium. The, the question of do we what level of, do we want any delirium? Is delirium at all protective against this I guess, in, uh, uh, for this experience? I, I don't think I can give you data on that. I think it's a uh, philosophically a very a very interesting interesting question. Uh, I mean, Connie, I guess I maybe I'll, I'll bump this one over to you. You had a lot of, a lot of uh, procedures and so forth done throughout the, throughout the ICU stay. Do you think uh, being being aware, and alert as you are right now when those were done, do you think that would have been helpful or hurtful or? No, I mean different?
3: I meant to mention that I, I would not want to see, I wouldn't want to not have had drugs <laughs> at, the, at a lot of those times. And I think it's much more effective when the delirium Occurs or when the person can finally communicate it, it is is to have someone there to say you don't need to worry about that you know and and it's interesting to you ask it I remember thinking one time one day I am so bored. And I'm very judgmental about boredom. Spent all this time with college students, you know. Well, if you tell me you're bored, then you are just boring. (laughs) You're on this campus and you can't figure out something really exciting to do. But I couldn't read. I couldn't follow the TV. I couldn't write. I couldn't talk. And sometimes you wonder, did your brain do this? Because it was just so bored. But um, I don't know. I think it happens, but there's enough so, such feelings of despair and despondency connected with it that I would love for someone to have cut my knees off with it and especially helped Harry through.
0: Yeah. Um, I have a question for you, um, and that is, um, that the, I guess the association with, um, with, with uh, pain medicine <coughs> and, uh, and, and sedation um, implicates in, those drugs in causing it but I'm also concerned that did you experience a lot of pain and anxiety? Maybe giving you more meds would have been beneficial and reduced your need to have the Do you see where I'm going with that?
3: We had that conversation mm-hmm. the other day. I think that's an interesting question, hard to tell. I was talking with one of my friends who's a psychologist. How would you do an experiment with that, with a control and, and that type of thing? I think the, my pain was kept really under control. And I didn't, if I knew, I I was aware of fentanyl, but I didn't know what it was. Um, So I kept thinking, oh, I don't have much pain. This is just great, and I'm not on any drugs. I don't think I was aware of how much my pain was controlled. I felt absolutely no pain with my trach. So I don't know why I thought they didn't use anesthesia. And um, I had, but I do remember having pain both with, a lumbar puncture I had, and my peg tube hurt a lot. With my breathing and the the Ativan that I wanted for that, that was just, to me in my mind, pure anxiety. That I, my breathing trials, I couldn't breathe. I would breathe once, and I go, "Phew, okay." Do I have to keep doing this? And it was just so much work, and I was so deconditioned. So it, I don't know. I think that's a hard question.
2: I think that there's some mixed data on that also. With benzodiazepines, it's pretty clear as a class effect that are associated with uh, with uh, delirium. With uh, with opiates, if you're using the opiate primarily for treating pain, once pain is at least subjectively gone, that does not seem to be associated with delirium. But it's when you're using higher levels of, of opiates for more of a, a sedation effect, that that level seems to be more implicated. So there's mixed data on, on it. We'll take another What a marvelous
0: patient-centered consciousness raising process of, of letting us uh, recognize delirium. A couple things um, that we alluded to in terms of the medications and, and this extraordinarily anxiety-provoking situation when you're sleep deprived and everything else. There is a, a progressive uh, literature on dexmedidine mm-hmm. and, and uh, as having less of a delirogenic effect when you need to sedate the mm-hmm. patient. It doesn't prevent delirium. But it seems that there's more and more studies mm-hmm. suggesting that there's less effects than you'll see in the deaths. No My all the effects that is certainly experienced in geriatric patients, but also in the ICU. One of the, so the, one of the things I wanted to comment on in this consciousness raiser, it's not part of practice here to use the can, either in the, it may be in the unit now, but it's certainly not on the floors. And one of the residents had this great idea. So instead of having you know all these codes that we never look at, just have a little, another page in there of what the can is. Mm-hmm. As part of the daily uh, rounding on our
2: patients, so thanks for again mm-hmm. for bringing this to our consciousness. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. And I think the the idea of having a cam ICU on a on a card should be fairly fairly easy. I'm making promises I shouldn't promise, but it would be easy to, to do. And the the issue of Presidex or dexmedetomidine is it's being used more frequently in the ICU. You're correct. That is not a, does not have the same uh, delirium associations, and we're, we're seeing practitioners now trying to trying to switch from from benzos the benzodiazepines over to dexmedetomidine. It has its own side effects, but we're also trying to find a, a combination between the both agents.
0: The medical grand rounds have all had patients come to be with us, and if this is just such a great demonstration of why that's so important to get a window into the world. People
4: would care about so it. thank you again for being with Love us and your presentation today. Thank you. <laughs>